We have with us today, Mark Lakeman of City Repair Project in Portland, Oregon. He's an eco-architect with the firm Communitecture. And uh, he's been touring places around the country, trying to get communities to uh, consider other ways to be more sustainable and more interesting, frankly, uh, by putting art installations and civic centers into communities where the commons have been eliminated. He's pretty much about uh, kind of decolonizing our mindset and reclaiming some cultural agency. And so thank you for being with us today, Mark. My pleasure, sir. It's, it's wonderful to talk about these subjects and share ideas for sure. Thank you. And I know you have some uh, kind of parallel things going on out there. You're ahead of us in a lot of ways, but we recently had a tent ban during the daytime in the local parks by the local parks board. It was sort of the last uh, vestige of sort of allowing camping. And of course, they're doing it on right of ways like sidewalks and things too, or they're discussing that. And so some people are scrambling to try to figure out a sanctioned campsite and there's an initiative to uh, start a tiny home eco village and i know that you were involved at various points with dignity village out there in portland oregon a lot of people have seen the videos about portland being pretty uh taken over on the streets and all the issues with mentally ill people and the, the drug addiction with the decriminalization um, and, uh, what they don't see is things like dignity village that I know went from being a tent squat to a nonprofit small business incubator and small building, tiny home, eco village of sorts, growing food and things. Uh, you want to, uh, start off with telling us uh, about that unhoused community? I, I will, I do. And, but first I want to, um, Kind of couch what I do a little bit more. Um, I I would say that what I what I this kind of sphere of my activities, uh, what I call design activism, and uh, we use a lot of permaculture, urban permaculture, uh, um, place making. Uh, you know, it's basically a lot of urban design activism, but I call it design activism and. Uh, the power of it isn't just to draw pictures. Basically, like the way that change is normally done in our society, we're, we're trying to approach it from a whole different angle. Like nor normal change comes as gentrification so frequently, and it's where an entire professional class of architects and engineers will be employed by people who have money. And they can be people who um, just have really destructive ideas, and their main impetus is to capitalize, is to extract is to take so they want to be able you know and and they, they could be creating housing but for them the return needs to be something like um them making a whole lot of money um to distribute to investors or something and usually the the community is on the receiving end of these initiatives and they don't really get that much access to say anything about what's going to happen um they might protest they might be able to comment on designs that are proposed 
and, and sometimes successfully stop projects or at least fight them and get them changed. So what we do in design activism is we actually convene people community by community, sometimes the whole city, to talk about the issues that they've raised and then to propose ideas and design them and then show everyone like, this is what it can be like. This is what the waterfront could be like. This is what a neighborhood can be like. So in our work, you know, a lot of times we're we're looking at an entire neighborhood and we're saying, how can this be more like a village? Like this entire neighborhood of just housing without even a park or a store. So it's a food desert, it's a place desert. Um, how can it be retrofit to become like a village? And we don't just design, you know, the centers of activity or the common spaces or the pathways that connect them all together. What we're really designing, like we'll come out of a dialogue like that and then people will immediately start to create it by taking down fences, opening up space on the interior of blocks, building benches, small buildings, gardens so people go right into an action mode and they don't wait around for permission they don't wait around for funding um but you know some of the bigger moves for retrofitting an entire neighborhood um are uh you know do require some time like you know we've passed these ordinances that let people transform entire streets entire intersections for free and just really using artistic processes so Design activism in this case has to do with people having um, a voice, but also having a pencil, also having a pen. Like they say that a picture, you know, conveys like at least a thousand words. So we are what happens when a community actually has the professional support of people with skills and talents and knowledge of building codes and knowledge of finance to take what people say that they want to see in the world and then depict it. And then, you know, for us as professionals, we also take things all the way to, to, to the technical level. We're used to passing ordinances that open up public spaces for communities to directly create. So um, all of that then is a good introduction to these houseless villages, these DIY tiny home houseless villages, because they're exactly the same thing. Only in many ways, they're cooler. Like there is no neighborhood in this entire city, no matter how much we've done, which is like a thousand, a thousand initiatives across the city. No neighborhood is as cool as our coolest houseless villages. Like the houseless villages are expressions of people meeting their needs, people acting on their own behalf with whatever skills and whatever materials they have to meet their needs. And when it's a need-based dynamic, they're going to create what they got to have. Like they got to have shelter, they got to have a place to cook. But the whole time that they're figuring these things out, they're also gelling a social architecture and figuring out their codes of conduct and the way that they'll make decisions and things like that, that then will result in um, even more, you know, basically community program. Like you go to Dignity Village and when you walk in, you'll see this beautifully like self-regulated, beautifully organized, lovingly tended space made out of stuff just from the waste stream, whether it's old pallets or broken windows, trash, crap, whatever it is, they've organized it into ex like artistic expressions that just will make you cry um, because they're so love, they're so beautiful. 
Um, but you walk into a space like that and what you hopefully have read about before you even get there, but you'll see, you'll hit off of it once you're there emotionally is that this place has the lowest crime rate in the entire city of all communities, no matter irrespective of status and class and wealth, dignity village, the people with the most crime, like criminal records or like records of, of distress and trauma of all the communities in the city, like the most violence has been done to them. They've been desperate, they've been poor, like their whole rap sheet is intense. And yet, so they've got the greatest amount of intensity of all communities in the city and they have the lowest crime rate and they have the most outstanding culture of participation. So there's a lot to say about why that's true, but this is why Dignity Village has been replicating in endless forms across the entire continent in so many different cities. And when a place like Bloomington is entertaining this idea, you know, there's going to be people that are like, oh, no, we can't do that. When they are resisting the idea of a DIY village, they don't know what they are talking about at all. And when they say, we don't want that, and they point at people destitute, struggling in the wind to cover themselves with a tarp and strewn with garbage and evidence of addiction all around them, they're like, we don't want that. It's like, yeah, nobody wants that. The people that are living that way don't want that either. So we're not talking about that at all. We're talking about exactly the opposite of that. And that, that they don't want, is actually what it looks like when you do nothing. And when you actually do something, it looks like everything improving. Like that's the missing piece all across the country is municipal leaders doing nothing. Like ignoring the problem, first of all, because if they do anything, then they get attacked politically, usually by people with a lot of money, you know, because their fear is always that you'll attract more homeless people. Their their fear is never that the local community, the children of the local community will die in the streets. Like the, 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 the people who grew up to be homeless people will die in the streets. That's not their fear. It's their, it's just, all they have is fear. You know, they're, they're afraid of even learning more about the issues. So what we're talking about is exactly the opposite of what people are afraid of. What if, what if, like the idea that you take a problem and you turn it into a solution is absolutely permacultural. And a lot of people aren't familiar with the idea that every problem contains and suggests its own solution, but that is true. And when it comes to houseless people, you can basically ask yourself a really fundamental question. And it goes to the very heart of why the United States exists, which is this, like, do pe should people be involved in their own problems? Like, do we have any kind of faith at all that people should be able to engage their own problems and solve them? Like, the whole, the whole reason why conservatives, people on the right end of the spectrum, keep talking about, you know, oh, we want to, uh, people to pick themselves up by their bootstraps is because they're actually, they know that that's an ethic, that's a, that's a philosophy that everyone subscribes to. Like people need to be accountable and take care of themselves. They're believing in self-sufficiency, right. And yet at the same time, when it comes to actually supporting that in the real world, let's face it, there are people in the political spectrum who are absolutely terrified of people finding their agency, finding their voice and taking care of business for themselves. 
And we're not even, actually, we're not even talking about overthrowing the dominant paradigm. We're just talking about people being safe at night, you know, and taking care of each other. That's what a homeless village, that's what a houseless village represents. It represents safety and security. I want to stop myself, though. For anybody listening to this podcast, if they have any doubt about how they, like, or they're trying to figure out where they stand on all this, these kinds of ideas. I want to say the same thing that somebody said to me when I first got involved, which was a woman, as I was entering a meeting for the founding of Dignity Village, she looked at me, she was the greeter at the door, she held my hand, she looked me in the eyes and said, if you're thinking of whether or not you want to support us, I just want to ask you if you've ever considered what it's like to be a woman on the streets every night. Can you imagine what that's like? And ever since, ever since that moment, I haven't stopped being involved in this movement. Gone all over the country, trying to help other cities get it started. It's a low-cost, quick-action success story that doesn't ever fail. But it always goes through challenges. And the main one is people caring to do anything to help, to set aside land. But after basically, you know, the political class will make you pull teeth for years before they finally start to identify with the project. They'll appropriate it, they'll take it over, and then they'll start to do all kinds of things that are just wrong. They'll make it, they'll make it a dumber model than it used to be. Um, once they start systematizing and institutionalizing it, they'll reduce the fun and the beauty for the sake of cost or whatever other logistical success that they're trying to have so um yeah we don't get we don't have humanists in charge we have accountants for the most part risk managers that that dumb things down and make us afraid anyway these are stories of people doing something they don't even need to know what they're doing at the beginning they just need to get started and start learning and their and their first ideas will be really good and They'll be running on their guts and their feelings and their love. And from that basis, they'll make almost no mistakes. But it's the beginning, you know, like for Bloomington. This is one thing that I always like excites me and also terrifies me at the same time. Like I'm excited, like in, in Portland, Oregon, where I live for decades, we have been confronting all kinds of challenges and transcending them, solving problems and then getting to the next horizon and the cool thing is, once you learn as a culture that there are next horizons, you start to get excited. Like, yeah, let's do the thing that's right in front of us right now. Get that done. And then move on to the next thing that we've learned is even an issue and that we've learned how to confront. Let's do everything we can. And then you start to get some momentum and some speed, you know, and then you start to get people actually working together from the political class and the you know class the class class structure the grassroots culture everybody actually starting to work together like what about getting there what about that as a dream like all of us working together toward a common benefit common goal like we're that's where we are in portland you know and that's part of why the the like stuff has rained down on us in the last couple of years to kind of distort the great story of Portland, Oregon's success. But let me tell you from within where we are, we rock still. The things that people are seeing about all the distress in the streets, yeah, that's all real. And uh, it's a good story to talk about, you know, 
we're uh, we're we're taking the DIY houseless village to a, a level of just steroids now, and um, the investment of the cities and counties in this model is astounding. Anyway, I'll pause. Start talking a lot. No, that's that's great. Uh, it's not uh, just about provide to some place for people to sleep, but sort of activating the collective imagination and shaking off the yoke of business as usual and overcoming the, the that fear complex that things are going to degrade if you let things start coloring outside the lines. Um, yeah. The uh, I, I think Dignity Village is out by an airport situation, so it, it of course had to happen on some undesired land. Is is that some? Uh, I think you mentioned in a, a previous talk, uh, like they where they put the leaves to compost or something. Is is that the case? Yeah. And yeah. is that like city or county property? Oh, that's Department of Transportation property. DOT. Yeah. Um, you know, we we looked at a lot of different sites before we landed out there. In fact, one of them was not too far from where I'm sitting right now. And it was uh, on a commercial uh, sort of four lane, five lane commercial strip. And uh, there was a big open field. Um, it had some kind of local nickname referring to all the drugs. But you could walk through that field and easily step on a syringe. And kids would walk through that field on the way to cutting through to get home from school. And uh, the police had already been studying Dignity Village on a previous location, three different locations. And they said at this big community forum, the police stood up and said, we've surveyed the impact of this village and it creates a kind of a, a zone of um, reduced crime and vandalism all around it for four, a four block radius. And with all the crime, the rape, even the murder that was happening in that field, the idea that Dignity Village would happen there um, to the police represented a step in the right direction. Like you would suddenly have a stewardship culture, you know, that would have an impact that would be beneficial to the neighborhood. But there were people, I mean, really seriously, when when you're proposing a project of this kind, you'll have people come out of the woodwork who are just acting from such a triggered place of fear. They don't care what the police have to say. They don't care what any expert or public health scientist has to say. They will just, they will, I have seen this so many times, they will literally lie to everyone and embarrass themselves, debase themselves in an attempt to stop the thing which they do not understand and they don't care to learn about. So that's what happened in the case of this sighting process. They, um, somebody had walked the neighborhood, passing out all these scary flyers, like, oh no, you know, there's all these criminals coming to our neighborhood. You can let criminals live here. And uh, so they managed to defeat this site for the houseless people um, to be able to create a, a you know, safe and secure village that was gonna improve conditions for everybody. But they defeated it. And now that that village, that, that field sits there to this day, 23 years later, um, as, as, as awful 
uh, you know, a presence as it's ever been in all this time. So that's that's pretty inevitable that 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 is an, an unfortunate feature of um, the initial phase of of creating a a quick a low cost quick action village. Yeah, and there are some very real uh, changes that have occurred here locally as we have become something of a magnet. It's it's kind of a, a term used to discourage doing anything or anything more. But as we have implemented compassionate policies and more services, other other counties in the state actually ship people here. Uh, you know, that's one of the things they actually do here is they'll, they'll buy people a bus ticket to go away to some other town if they can get somebody somewhere to say, hey, I'm over here. And recently yeah. I heard about a woman who uh, went out to Arizona in expectation of staying with someone. So they bought her a ticket, got there, and then that fell apart. And then so she's stranded there with no resources, you know, no, no support system of social, you know, already there like people develop on the street uh you know you have a certain amount of backup here and there with certain people that are familiar with you that you're not just a blank face wanting something from that you know basically a kind of a familial connection has occurred yeah and so there has been an increase in incidents and a change in what was overall a pleasant uh situation for a lot of people I mean, there was always underlying racial issues and some class issues, like to make the local roads for this was, I think, back in the 40s or something. Um, they cleared out a community to put it in the reservoir, you know, flooded it. And so there's a town under the lake somewhere that's our water supply. And they were the more country type people and they were displaced. And so then there was a conflict between that class and that was even white within white, but, you know, to encounter the university town people, um, you know, there's a long history of it. And then there's black neighborhood segregation to a degree, some connections with the old underground railroad. There are actually some progressive stuff in the history of Indiana that a lot of people, you know, aren't aware of where it was kind of a, a liberal state back in the day and now it's known as one of the conservative bastions passing the most backward laws and so there's a there's a real tension here within bloomington of being what some people call the people's republic of bloomington yeah and you know the shows, the shows in indianapolis the capital you know kind of snicker about bloomington when it comes up fighting the uh, the new interstate or what have you and Bernie Sanders came through, had standing room only in the auditorium. He had to come out and talk to the crowd outside before he did his presentation, you know, just so everybody got their little, uh, you know, touched Blarney Stone. So um, there's this real veneer of progressivism, and there is a lot of it in a way, you know, more environmental awareness, but there's still a lot of opacity with some of the city government processes and things you know which is kind of the better to discourage people from interacting with it so you have kind of certain core players like i imagine you are there in portland 
who are kind of the spearhead representing a broader community that doesn't want to deal with bureaucracy and the tedious process of meetings and things. Um, but there have been little movements of people that have organized and then they look to the local nonprofits that everybody sees as the ones doing things, the wonderful, compassionate pillars of the community. And often they find that they're not actually finding receptiveness even among them. They already have a certain money stream going on. They have a certain way of operating and they're not trying to blur the lines or push the boundaries that much either. They're just trying to stay cool and get that next grant, which will surely have some positive effects, but these type of creative grassroots, you know, self-initiated endeavors are, are definitely squelched or try to ignore them out of existence. And it has discouraged people yeah. time and again to where groups disband because yeah. when they get to the level of, hey, we got to get some land and some money, let's look to the multi-million dollar agency. And that agency is like, not even, we don't even want to have a meeting. We're doing what we're doing. Just support what we're doing. Meanwhile, yeah. there's this whole swath, like the Section 8 voucher programs, Bloomington Housing Authority doing a lot of great things and they're improving and they're even adding to the budget. And they talk in terms of, oh, we've got a 64% success rate of getting people into housing once they qualify for a Section 8 voucher, housing choice voucher it's called. But they often don't have a lot of choice because when they go out to try to find the housing, they can't secure it. And they have like four months to do this. If they can't do that in four months, they can lose the voucher or they have to go to some other town to to implement it. Well, they don't say that we have a 36% failure rate of people who qualify for Section 8, get it, go through the process, all the paperwork, qualifications, and then they can't get a place. Nobody wants to emphasize that. It's the glass half, in, half full kind of, kind of deal. But meanwhile, that that's, all, that's the people that are in the system. They're able to deal with a bureaucracy, you know, become a client. And then there's a whole swath of people that are, you know, impinged by the sort of nannyism, the parentalism, the moralizing of the religious organizations, the presumption that people don't have a work ethic, everybody presuming everybody's an addict or mentally ill instead of an economic refugee. And there's a lot of people that just, they would do more or, you know, could deal more with the capitalist system if they were getting more out of it. But when they feel like they're slaving their life away, all their waking hours, just to get by and to give the money to the landlords and the stores and the utilities, they say, why bother? You know, I'd rather be able to have some, some of my money left. A lot of these people are working for people don't realize they have jobs. They're on the street, but, you know, they, uh, just need relief from this perpetual inflation and some of them would do better if they were just allowed to exist and then some of these incorrigible criminal types are a real problem of course people have to get protective orders within the unhoused community against others and things but even those people if you give them a different environment and you're not poking your finger in their face all the time and like 
oh, there's a gardener, a greenhouse to participate with, or, oh, okay, I'll throw my recycling in the bin, you know. Even these people that are in a sort of a nihilistic, self-destructive mode can be coaxed into um, more of a community mindset when they're accepted and they're given some place within it. No doubt. No doubt that if the conditions change, um, and especially if there's a benefit to participation, then uh, yeah, a lot, a lot can, a lot can, personalities can be transformed, behaviors can be massively altered and to the better. That's for sure. Especially when people, um, like right now, in the conditions you're talking about, people are walking around feeling powerless. So they kind of lash out, they act out as they feel powerless. They're trying to find a sense of a feeling of power. And um, on the other hand, if people live in a circumstance where there's a sense of belonging, and also that that therefore establishes a different basis for how you even perceive other people, like, you know, once you've experienced a bit of interdependence, where you realize you need other people just as they need you, it starts to change some of those really sociopathic tendencies um, toward, yeah, toward, a, first it's a softening. I've seen people act totally compulsive in their behavior, um, be transformed and tempered by living in community with other people. So I, I definitely agree with you. And uh, I was interested to see that uh, part of the Dignity Village uh, evolution was that it became a nonprofit and a small business incubator that space was made for that. And as you were saying earlier, some of these conservative types about bootstraps, well, there you go. I mean, about creating an autonomy, a self-sufficiency, and I believe they're mostly not on government programs and things there. I, what is it, $50 a month that people are paying to participate? I'm sure there's a bit of a sliding scale and discretion involved there. Yeah. And then the self-governance structure that they've developed, code, and yeah. things like fire inspections, you know. Yeah, there's uh, one thing's for sure is that there's these founding conditions that are really challenging. Uh, you have to make agreements to get things up and running. But then as everybody kind of learns and establishes trust, and I'm talking about, you know, everyone from the village, the people living in that village to um, the people that are like working with the bureaucracy from within the bureaucracy to help kind of regulate this or help it kind of establish itself. And then the local community, everybody has these initial learning curves. But um, as people kind of shift from a founding mode to a more of a management mode, um, you know, then then more becomes possible. Uh, in the case of Dignity Village, you know, they're moving in, building platforms in order to just set up their tents. And uh, it can be like that. It's actually quite a beautiful thing. I, I think it's kind of an anthropological process to watch that people go from, you know, basically a nomadic phase to a settled phase. And um, 
that's where middle school kids with tools, high school kids, county employees, if you have a high amount of veterans in this, oh my God. So let me just tell you about this one village that we've done. This is called Veterans Village. <laughs> Oregon City came to us and they're like, okay, we're a really conservative place and it's a stretch to just help anybody, but we know for sure what is a good starter for this community is veterans. We can help veterans get off the street. And because um, we know that that'll be supported across the community. So we have created Veterans Village. For the cost of one freaking single family house, we built 36 individual units, all with electricity, and then centralized services of a giant community kitchen with multiple burnies and burners and sinks, a huge dining hall, an infirmary, an office, laundry, showers, toilets, ADA access systems, you know, a parking lot, all of that for the cost of one single family house. But part of what made that possible is the fact that there's all these, all these Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, and more veterans out there ready to help. Oh my God, it's like a tool festival. It's like a tool parade. If you say that you are going to help veterans and you put out the call, you freaking have the Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marines show up to help with all their tools ready to go. Like we blasted out 36 units. We mass produced them. And it was the most beautiful thing. I just want to say this to every conservative in the country. You totally are missing out if you don't get to watch veterans from the military working with kids and showing them how to use tools. There's your better world right there. And they're doing it with their hands. Who in the world who in the world would ever oppose such an idea? And that's what Bloomington can have. Our society needs to stand up and come to its own damn rescue. And the way that we begin doing that is with the people that are right in front of us in distress. We have all these people that need to help, like all these people with skills and talents that totally want to help. We have all these disengaged youth that are totally like atrophying in these te technological distractions and then falling into drugs. If people are afraid of addressing problems, then they're missing the whole opportunity of re-engaging the disengaged society to start focusing on one problem after another problem and starting to convert them into these, you know, luminous solutions that inspire us to do more. The thing about houseless people, I would say to everybody in the damn country is they are right in front of your face. And it's almost like God is putting your opportunity right in your face, calling like, hello, hello, knock, knock, knock. Is your heart awake? Is your empathy alive? Do you see that they also have thumbs and can speak? Like your species is in distress in front of your very eyes. And if you can't show up to that, you do not deserve redemption. You're, you're, the train is passing you by, you know? People want to have a sense of hope. They've got to get involved with their own skills and talents and agency and their own freaking, like, this is one of the most beautiful thing. When we do this work, we find all these people with one degree of separation between them. Like you've got somebody building some house and then, and then they meet the person who they're building for. And it's their best freaking friend from third grade. 
you know, like that's what you find. That's the magic in all of this. Re-engage, reconnect, and discover all of the richness of, of the connection that's right in front of your face all the time that you're not like really bothering to discover because you're not involved. And so um, how many of these communities are able to become self-sustaining? And uh, is that by them becoming a business in any kind of way and creating yeah. <laughs> green collar jobs? You brought this up and I'm sorry, I didn't address it sooner, but about Dignity Village. Yeah, at first they didn't have micro enterprises because they were too busy busy building infrastructure. And that's a good enough story. You know, Portland, Oregon was really satisfied to see that they were so busy being productive and industrious. But, you know, at first no one could afford to pay anything. Um, but now they are entirely economically self-supporting. You know, everybody in the village chips in some amount of money. And, you know, the last time I was out there, I'm on their board of advisors. Last time I was out there, it was 25 a month. And I was impressed. Like, that's that's really good. And then, you know, the thing is so successful, it helps them actually start to save money. Everybody there is stable enough to get out and get a job. And then they, they start building up some money so that then they can transition out of the village. Because except for the fact that they make their best friends, their best friendships of their life there, and they develop lasting, long, long like lifelong relationships there, everybody, for other than that, they would all like to go back to a normal life. You know, except in a normal life, they're way more isolated from other people than they are at the village. So that's what makes it hard to leave. But the village itself it gives them the opportunity to attain leadership, to live in a place of co-responsibility. It does all this stuff to repair people. That's why it has the lowest crime rate in all the city. People there become very mentally and physically healthy because living and working happens in the same place and the relationships with everyone around them deepens. They all become great listeners and great communicators. And this is what actually replaces violence and distress and drug dependence because they find the thing that was missing the whole time which is a place among a greater whole like every american and I, I don't even care what somebody like no i'm libertarian i'm an i'm an island done to myself i don't need no roads no i don't even need air damn it like every freaking american is starved to go beyond just being an individual they want to be part of a greater whole they do. They want to be part of a family. They want to be part of a community on some level. And anybody who fights against that is going to actually have to turn around and notice that they're they're part of clubs. They might be part of some group that's trying to overthrow the government. But like whatever their affinity group is, that's something that they're attracted to. And that's real. So at the village, yeah, it's self-sufficient. There's all these micro enterprises Village has a great deal with the urban foresters. Like for, foresters have to take down problematic maples or something like that, or an oak tree drops a branch on some power lines. You got to take down the tree at some point. The big pieces of biomass get trucked out to the village rather than chipping them up and putting them in a dump where all they do is emit carbon and make climate change worse. Instead, the tree parts go to Dignity Village. They cut them up, they split them, and then they season them and sell them to Portlanders 
for fuel for the winter time. Um, and then that helps to pay the bills for the village. So the village has lots of things going on. Each individual contributes a little money. The village has enterprises that it does as a group. And then it has these smaller enterprises that individuals and little smaller groups are doing. And all of it adds up to the resource that the village needs to, to meet its needs, to feed itself and stuff. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, great to hear things like that, that, you know, we can take to people that just can't conceive of it being anything but a repository of the most lazy, good-for-nothing uh, shirkers, <laughs> yeah. you know, which, which really exist. But even those people uh, can be inspired into things. And if, even if they can't, it's less of a problem for the community to have them housed and fed than out trying to steal to survive uh, you know, to, to be putting them through the hospital, to taxpayer money to keep them in jail and then feed them commissary in there. It, it's, it's less expensive and it's better for the community if they are not just pushed right onto the pavement and not even allowed to sleep. Every time they lay down, they're running off somewhere else. That increases the stress, the, the mental degradation. It, 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 even more so makes makes people go to drugs. It costs, us. it costs us in so many ways, and it just makes the problem get worse and worse and worse until it it's at your door. And uh, I think it costs us our our soul. I think it costs us our ability to. Yeah, I mentioned redemption. Just one thing, I you know, I got a lot of different thoughts when I'm by myself when. I'm, traveling around and going from place to place to work on this issue. And sometimes I find myself thinking, you know, um, there are people right in front of you that are offering you an opportunity and it's either you might be scared of them, but they're actually, they're right in front of you. And like I was saying, people don't know how you might already be connected to that person who's right in front of you. But like my, I guess my question that just is really mysterious to me is how do people who pray at night, expect their prayers to be answered when they don't maybe do anything to help with the distress that's right in front of them where people's like existential crisis is playing out before your very eyes uh and you're not doing what you can to help saying yes to a houseless village it's not risky it's got a track record it works every time there's no solid argument against it whatsoever that can't, you know, any questions people have can all be answered. Um, and the only, the only thing that you need to do is just say yes to it and, 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 and help. Everybody gets better. Everybody gets richer from helping with these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and then, it, and then it starts to alleviate all these other, these other things that are going on. But I really think like, Redemption, redemption for our society is a big issue, no matter how you define it, whether it's got a spiritual twist to it or not. Like, you know, we did some serious violence in this land. Um, and what are we going um, to do to somehow make a, a tone for that? Um, and, you know, you, I'm not even necessarily talking about the afterlife, like Judgment Day or whatever. It's like, 
What does it do to help you feel less anxiety every day? I know that getting involved has helped me um, have, you know, almost no anxiety. What, what does it help? What is it going to take to help a person have peace of mind? Like you're witnessing existential distress every day in the streets all around us. And, uh, is that gonna is that gonna be better for anybody if we don't do anything about it? It's only gonna get worse. And you know, if you're a little bit imaginative in a conspiratorial sort of way, you might go like, "Wow, if this if this is happening to people like this, my own neighbors, it's gonna happen to people in my family. Maybe it'll even happen to me." And if if you let it get so bad that it comes to the crowd control solution where people are just managed like a problem because we're already kind of there, then then that's a bad place for our entire society to be. Like, do they, I mean, ultimately to get to the point where you're literally like almost thinking about liquidating people because you haven't taken any kind of creative or humane approach and you let it get so bad that people, I mean, people are getting like zombies out on the streets. How much, how much worse does it need to get? So yeah, I fear those kinds of solutions. When we put cowards in office, you know, the last thing that they think of doing is is the right thing. So, and that somewhat leads us into uh, the city repair project uh, stuff that uh, you guys have been doing for I don't know how many decades now, um, which is kind of getting to the way our mindsets have been molded uh, and that it's a result of the colonialization and the structures that have been put, the, the grid work, the elimination of a commons as, as a collective place. Cause I know out there, particularly in the Northwest, there was a big, you know, big uprisings in late 1800s into the uh, great depression um, of people organizing, striking, and so they said, well, we got to we gotta kind of get rid of this uh, place for them to gather and atomize the community again. And you guys are reestablishing these sort of civic nodes in neighborhoods, putting some whimsy, some art into the situation and showing it as a place of connection, like the, the things you do with intersections where you put a bench on one corner or a solar tea stand on the other. I don't know if you guys are the inception of the little libraries. That is that is a kind of a big thing around town now. And now people are sort of doing little pantries and little uh, like thrift stores. Some some sort of official or sanctioned, and some not. And yeah. uh, you want to tell the story a little bit to people that aren't familiar with how city repair got going, the challenges you were faced with and how you overcame those? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So city repair, uh, you know, it, it, it started in the mid nineties as a kind of a movement and an organization. And at the same time, it was really an, also an expression of the momentum of um, community and building and civic participation culture in the city of Portland. So like city repair is famous for, um, creating these legal ordinances that have opened up public space, like 6,000 roadway miles in Portland, 
and 22,000 street intersections are all um, now available for free for communities to remake them on their own initiative and with their own resources. So all the intersections in every residential zone can all be transformed into public squares. And all the streets that connect those intersections can all be creatively transformed by the people who live right there. So <clears throat> we've managed, first of all, we were understanding that we're living in this giant colonial infrastructure that's, it, it's really accurate to call it totalitarian because it's designed from an absolutely gigantic top-down place, boom, over like the entire continent. Roman colonialism was was um, was uh, adopted in 1785 by the Continental Congress in the form of the National Land Ordinance, reauthorized over and over again as we conquered more and more native land, um, expanding eventually all the way to the Pacific Coast. And uh, it's an inter interesting thing I found out a few years ago that my own family was in the first wave of colonists um, that was authorized by the Continental Congress to, to, to install the Roman grid. And when I went to the museum that tells that story, I saw my own ancestors right there uh, on the list of the original colonists, which is really fascinating. Um, so yeah, the National Land Ordinance is an interesting document um, and I, I won't, go on too much about it except to say that there's three documents that essentially laid out the Western Hemisphere. And the one south of the USA border um, is the law of the Indies by the Spanish and it affected everything all the way to the tip of South America. And then the National Land Ordinance affected the United States and the Dominion Land Survey affected Canada. And they're all essentially the same. They're all based on the, um, on the system of basically compartmentalization and commodification of the world um, through Roman colonialism. And, uh, but in the case of the United States, unlike the other two documents, there's no provision for public space. Like in Canada, there was um, a mandate for public space, especially in the Spanish Law of the Indies, there was a specific provision made so that every city and town would have a certain number of plazas per capita, per number of people, per scale. And in the case of the United States, we really just literally, we took what the Spanish had done and then we whited out the provision of the public square. And the reason that we did that was because the Continental Congress had just witnessed how vital public space was in our struggle against the British. And they thought, well, if we enable that feature to happen in the program, the civic program of our colonial cities, um, then very likely the West Coast will break away from us just like we did from England. That's that's the rationale as I understand it. So here we are living in these cities that are actually designed to omit public space. And they're, as Noam Chomsky breaks down really beautifully, we, um, we are designed in a very strange way. We are a colony, like we've, we began as a colony and then we broke away and aspired to become an empire. So we, we had, we already were systematized and then we further systematized in a way that would basically be to the advantage of the ruling wealthy class going forward. 
So our, our society is, it's, its patterns and processes are very different than in other countries that are more culturally focused. Like, like for instance, in a neighborhood, one way that this plays out is you're sitting there watching all of these processes of change that feel invasive and it, it's become so normal. You don't ask yourself, well, why doesn't the community have its own processes of change that are dynamic? Like, why don't we work with each other to make these changes happen? Why does it always happen as an exploitive violence that's coming at us from the exterior? And that's just, it's weird. It's, it's, an, it's an aberration in human history to live this way. And we don't realize that. We also don't realize that it's an aberration to walk around feeling alienated from other people and not have a single damn place to sit in your entire neighborhood. You know, there, like there should be spaces for just being there and, and, and enjoying the passage of time with other human beings. Um, so really weird in the sense that we don't have those spaces and we have the fewest in all the world in our communities. I remember seeing a meme online. People love to look at it because it's it's a bench that's sculpted. It made it looks like an open book. So the back of the bench is one side of the book, and then the the seat curves, you know, is the is the other side of the book. And then you go, oh, that's cool. And then somebody says, actually, you look at the curve of it and everything. It's made to make it so nobody could sleep on that bench and I, I guess I don't even know how long you could sit on it with the way you know ergonomically uh, yeah. so <laughs> even uh, they do employ some art in some of the ways that they discourage you know people from loitering yeah. vacancy that bench was built by my best friend oh really Pedro. yeah is that the the true situation of it that it was actually made to uh, not to not be able to sleep on? Yeah, it was built at a campus where they were afraid of that kind of thing. And at the same time, it's sitting under this huge porch with all the surface area where anyone could just sleep on the floor if they wanted to. So, yeah, strange. Yeah, lay behind it. <laughs> you know, if um. I can understand the fears that people have. I mean, I, I understand. And at the same time, if you do things that are outward and um, basically extend a hand, people will respond. Situations where you actually bother to communicate with houseless people and you offer them an amenity, um, they're very happy to, and I'm generalizing with a lot of confidence, Houseless people are really happy to um, take care of something that take care of something for someone. They 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 want to be entrusted and they want to they want to have responsibilities. So if if somebody says to them, "Will you please take care of this bench?" You I see you here a lot. You use this bench. Would you please take care of it and make sure that nothing bad happens? When you ask somebody who has nothing to um, have a role. Um, it's a, it's just shocking maybe for some people how, how they will respond because at least they have that, they have a sense of a, a belonging there now because they've been asked to take care of something. 
that's what's really going on. And when we when we just treat people like we should be afraid of them and we dehumanize our own space, we impoverish everyone's experience and we don't let good things happen. And I, I think it was the, um, I think you had said in a talk I saw at the Unitarian Church years back that there was Native American leader that uh, told you guys to just go ahead and start doing things and stop asking for permission. I don't know if that's the same yeah. person that was memorialized in the sculptured bench. Um, might not be the same person, but uh, yeah, I quote this guy Elk River a lot. He was a Cheyenne roadman, um, traveling Cheyenne uh, shaman, you might call him. And uh, yeah, he helped, he helped get the whole project started and said some of the most beautiful stuff to us to inspire us. Um, like, I mean, one of the most wonderful, profound things that he ever said was, uh, you know, and this was in the context of lots of discussions, dialogues, where I got to ask a bunch of questions. And he was like, I guess he was saying, how we divide ourselves, not just from each other, but we divide ourselves internally because of all these fears. We're constantly acting from fear. So we're always making divisions, we're always compartmentalizing and separating ourselves from each other. But he's like, you do it to your own interior world as well. And he said, if you really want to change the world, then you have to start acting like the natural economy of the universe itself. And if you notice, like every time you draw a breath, who's making the air? It might be God. Whoever, like whenever you whenever you draw a breath, it's there for free. Like your body is a gift of love. Nobody charged you for it. You know, the world that you're on, like is this constantly self-regenerating system that's delivering you, delivering your entire reality for free. So if you can start acting from a place of reciprocity yourself, where you just share, 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 everything is ultimately going to be okay. But only if you can get into it, like this is what he said, get into a groove with the universe. Like we're the only ones that are really screwing up the world. Everybody else uh, isn't. Like all the other species and the entire planetary biosphere is actually in this whole self-regulating pattern that's fearless and we're the ones that are screwing it up for our, our for ourselves and we're we're the greatest danger so like yeah getting into a groove with the universe i mean it's so beautiful to think like the, you know like that metaphor um feel the force that's what it's talking about work with the force of nature itself in the things that you do and the choices that you make and so if nature itself is outward and endlessly sharing and doesn't keep track of anything and there's no like you know there's no spreadsheet about it it's just constantly abundant and constantly sharing and cycling and reciprocating regenerating um then be like that liberate yourself like you know if you're a selfish person just stop it and uh feel the power of, of liberating your creativity like you actually one thing i know for sure when i act like that I liberate my creativity so that there's just no end of what I have to share once I start letting it go and sharing. Yeah. And that's what uh, 
people are amazed by, enthralled by, when they come across images of these uh, intersections that you guys have taken over, you paint like a big sunflower or some kind of mural in the street. Of course, you have events and festivals around it. And you, similarly with the unhoused situation, you call upon the, the different resources and skill sets that people have in the region. And you met resistance by certain people in the neighborhood and the authorities uh, I believe the police were, were sicked on you and then they were going to start fining you and stuff. You, you want to uh, tell people about, you know, where you went from being a total renegade thing to a, a sort of a sanctioned operation? Well, this is one of the coolest bits of the story at the very beginning. Um, we started to do all these wonderful things in public space. I played a big part in getting that going because I had just come back from seven years of traveling to visit different indigenous villages around the world. And when I came back to my own neighborhood, I was like, you know, for, for the first time in seven years, I was in a place where people weren't talking to each other. And because I had been an architect, I was like, oh my God, I see the power of, of zoning laws that force us all to leave where we live at the start of the day to go somewhere else. Where, unlike all the villages that I had been in, where people live and work in the same place because nobody zones them and forces them or tells them you can't create livelihood right where you live. You have to go elsewhere and work for someone else. So when I came back, I'd also been interacting with Elk River who had explained, you know, what it's like to be an indigenous person as part of a culture that's thousands of years old and be attacked by these crazy people who are like, in the name of God, we will take your land and subdue you. Um, What's it like to be on the receiving end of that? And then see these people are really, they really are crazy. And uh, they're being made crazy and they're instituting craziness into the places that they're taking. So I, I was helped to get a lot of perspective. And in my own neighborhood where I had grown up, I didn't care to talk to anybody, but I had just been out traveling among all these people that have common stories and common songs and common architecture and and gorgeous common spaces and the safest most walkable communities in the world the most culturally expressive joyous where people like are intergenerational and they grow up with their family and their true mentors like all these good things so i came back and i just for the first time i could see my reality because i i've been in all these other places i know how to kind of a stereoscopic vision i was like wow i see that we've literally designed all of our problems. I felt like it was the cruelest joke ever. I was like standing in a neighborhood, typical American neighborhood without a single public square anywhere. And I was like, of course we don't talk to each other. And yet this place where pathways converge in all the villages in the world, that place is where people's lives come together. And then there's a commons where everyone flows in and out of the space and the organic, like they don't, those people don't have to talk about building community. They don't need um, a freaking, you know, block watch. They don't need a, a phone tree. They don't need a brownout in order to come outside and talk to each other. They live their lives in the streets, like Shakespeare's whole theater of the life, theater of life plays out. They're on stage all the time in their own lives, they are living characters, not living in isolation. So I came back from that context and I was like completely free to break law, the law. 
I walked up to this old lady's house that I'd never bothered to talk to my whole life. And she like looks at me seven years after last time she saw me ignore her. And she's like, what do you want? And I was like, okay, I've gone through a lot of change and I want to know what help you need. And she's like, are you serious? She's like, I need a lot of help. I'm poor and I don't have any children and I haven't been able to paint my house since 1966. And I was like, let's paint your house. And by the end of that day, we had built the first little 24-hour self-service solar-powered tea station on her corner. Like, that's the first thing we did. We made a place to share tea, a little pump thermos. Oh, my God. And then over the weekend, I mean, and then, because I wasn't afraid of people anymore, because I'd been in all these villages, I just stood, I went up and down the street knocking on doors. And I was like, do you know Anne-Marie down on the corner? And some people were like, well, yeah, old lady. Other people had no idea who she was. And people had lived there for 20 years. They didn't even know who she was. So I was like unlocking the isolation. I went around knocking on doors, knowing we're all isolated and that they didn't know it, that it was just normal. So I said, there's an old lady down on the corner who hasn't been able to paint her house for three decades. And I'm painting her house this weekend. You want to help? And people are like, sure, I've got a brush. I've got a pressure washer. I've got primer. Like everybody wanted to help. Like, this is one of the crazy things. Everybody really does want to help, but they don't even know how to ask for help and they don't know how to talk or listen. Like Americans supposedly can only listen for 15 seconds by on average. So I just not, went up and down the streets knocking. All these people came out of their houses and we painted, we set up floodlights and we painted until it was time to go to bed. And then all these neighbors were feeding us. And, we, and this is how it can start in any damn neighborhood in the whole land. So we painted her house over the weekend. We built that tea station. And the next thing that happened on this other corner, Brian, the drag, dragster mechanic, some of these stories are so hilarious. We wanted to put in a little place for books on his corner. And we knocked on his door. I knocked on his door and he said, no way. You know, I'm not interested in what you guys are doing. Forget it. So then I walked back over to the house my family house on the on the northwest corner and there was this gorgeous woman living there now this is a story that some people might not appreciate but emily loved to run around in a bikini in the yard she was just fearless and she was very beautiful and whatever whatever was going on there and i came back and she's like well did he say yes and i said um no i don't think it's happening and she said well we'll see about that <laughs> and she walked over <laughs> across diagonally across the intersection and she knocked on his door <laughs> and he came outside and she, five minutes later she walked back and she's like okay you can put it in <laughs> you can build your little that's the story of the first little free library in the world uh, officially the first little free library and if it if anybody needs verification, I can give them articles on this little books thing. But it was built by two little kids, two little foster kids, Timmy and Siobhan. And Emily Brides, Brideswell, I think was her last name. She's the one who got it to happen on that corner. And we made it out of all these deconstruct, out of all this demolition um, that was happening in the neighborhood from gentrification. We took windows and boards and we built that little, 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 we called it a book station, but it was the first little free library. And it was the thing that the folks from Madison came and saw that inspired them to create 
the organization freelibrary.org. Anyway, everyone in the corners started to fill up with all these little interactive features and they were all illegal. Like now they're not illegal. <laughs> all of them are, you can, you can just do them. They're free. They're, you, you, you actually are automatically permitted. And even though the city doesn't know that you've done it, you can just do it and you, and you have an automatic mythological permit and you're automatically insured in case anything goes wrong. Like that's how cool our municipality has gotten. Like for everybody who's like, oh no, Portland, Oregon, what's happening? Um, yeah, what's happening is people are coming from the cold interior to the West Coast fleeing the economic you know, dis distress and they're coming to the West Coast. So first of all, they're coming from all over the place. It's not Portlanders that are the only ones out on the streets. And then uh, the real story of this place, besides the fact that we've got a huge black guy from the Trump administration attacking us and kidnapping people and disappearing them for days and then releasing them beat up in the streets. Like that was what was happening. The real story of Portland, Oregon is that we have been driving the process of change from inside of our communities and innovating madly and creating bridges and linkages vertically through the inf infrastructure of the system throughout the entire political spectrum and horizontally at every level. So we're an incredibly creative community that can do almost anything we set our minds to. And I think that's why we attracted the ire of the Trump administration because we were literally out in the streets showing our democratic, no, not our democratic, like basically our protest culture is an, is an incredible um, expression of, of, you know, an active engaged citizenry of democracy. And uh, I, I've literally wondered my whole life after one innovation after another, I've been wondering what is going to, what's going to happen once somebody decides they don't like this democratic experiment that's happening because it is attracting attention from all over the world. People come in here all the time to try to learn our, what is the secret of our success. And then we get attacked in this way. Streets are filled with tear gas and people are fleeing downtown and the police are, you know, anyway, you know the story. Uh, so the real pro the real story of Portland, Oregon is is the stuff that's not being told, which is happening everywhere. We're like we're still the tree the city with the most trees per capita because we plant trees madly. We have the most nonprofit organizations of all cities, and the most coffee houses, the most public spaces, the greatest gigantic urban spaces and urban wetlands and wildlife sanctuaries, the greatest public square in the country, like. I'm sorry, I'm like extolling. It's like I'm from the Chamber of Commerce here, but like I love this place, and I've been watching its story of of it reclaiming its destiny from, you know, the deeper the the, the historical story of white supremacy, which was you know had taken hold here so so powerfully for a long time, and that has been just reinvented entirely from within. So I think we attracted some repressive initiative from the outside in the form of Trump and his unaccountable um, thugs. Well, and part of that uh, fostering, you know, your local culture that you're talking about, I think was uh, really kicked in by the city repair project stuff. And 
at one point the you know before the outer forces came down on you the local police were sent out to put down these freakos but the police loved what they were sent out to stop us and once they got there they said they literally said the guy in charge of the entire southeast precinct of the city this whole quadrant was ed riddell's responsibility and ed showed up at what we were doing and he said you know what i'm paid to stop stuff which is bad but not stuff which is good and he's like i'm not stopping this this is wonderful because for one thing when he got there and we were painting the streets and building all these things on the corners we didn't run away like we stood right there because it's our neighborhood we actually were feeling so powerful and confident not just because we were like a bunch of individuals standing right where we lived, but because we all felt connected and that what we were doing was to help all of each other. Like, and you know what, here's another piece. I mentioned Anne Marie, the old lady. Um, when there were all these times when, when I personally could have given up, Anne Marie was there and she was more scary than any policeman. I, I would not want to like, Anne-Marie was this cantankerous old Catholic lady. And when I would consider giving up and folding, she would call me a pussy and tell me to get back out there and not give up. Like, what's it like to have a cantankerous mean completely loving? Like, she would bake me a birthday cake in a second, but she would also criticize me and dress me down if, um, if, I, if I ever stopped believing. So I was definitely more afraid of letting her down, not of her hurting me, but of, yeah, of her yelling at me maybe, but I was more afraid of her, of letting her down, letting down her faith in a better world than I was of the police arresting me or beating my head. And so we kept going where no one had gone before uh, in terms of our cojones, our, our boldness. Like we... The city council was totally perplexed. They were like, so the police go there and then the police come away on their side. Like these people, we keep trying to fight with them because like as Eric Sten said, he's a city council guy in charge of housing. And he's like, we kept trying to fight with them and they would not fight with us, but they wouldn't stop doing what they were doing. We would go to their neighborhood and like, you know, issue these threatening letters that tell them to stop and they just wouldn't. So like, they are just, they're just joyously creating and it's not taking the form of fighting. So everybody wants to be on their side. And even the Department of Transportation, once they finally, you know, we finally got to have a respectful dialogue with them. They were like, okay, the truth is we love what you're doing. We have this entire wall dedicated. We have all these pictures and we all love what you've done. But we don't feel like we can say yes. And the mayor was just like, don't you ever do this again to, to transportation. They were like, if anyone ever comes to you with a proposal where they're saying that they want to actually address the issues of the city and they want to be a resource, like, bring it to me. Don't do this ever again. Don't ever turn people away. Like, the world is in a really bad spot. But, you know, can't you relate as human beings yourselves that people live in, in, in living in their neighborhood have the same issues that you do in yours. Ah, anyway, transportation is now totally like this is the cool thing. It's just like Dignity Village getting around to um, 
having micro enterprises. They don't do it at first. They have to solve certain first things and then they get on to second and third things. And in our neighborhood, like there were first things that we had to do. But I always felt like we were all, we're helping to humanize the bureaucracy so that like now, you, you could ask me back in 1996, do you think this might help evolve the bureaucracy to do these kinds of projects? And because I'm an urban design nerd, I would say, I think so. I think that this will inspire systemic change because our main strategy is engaging people as people and not as bureaucrats. Keep giving them a chance to show up as people. Like you show up as a person, you give them a chance to show up as a person. So here we are, Department of Transportation, the last probably four directors they've had were all hired to elevate placemaking as their primary function in the city. They're actually at the point where they're like, oh my God, we're in charge of almost all the public space in the city. Like 55% of the city is public right-of-way. Like we have an awesome responsibility. That's cultural space. It's not just for cars. So they hire a director who institutes change throughout all of the different areas of the Department of Transportation to make cultural development their primary mission. And not just facilitating, you know, an, an, an engineering transport transportation space. So our sidewalks are more wonderful. The, the neighborhood greenways are these totally integrated systems of placemaking and ecology and traffic safety and calming. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And and so it was the mayor back then actually that called off the dogs. Yeah, as soon as the mayor saw a picture of what we'd done in the streets, she, I'll never forget this moment. It was the most beautiful exercise in, a, in executive power I'll probably ever witness. It taught me a lot about the nature of our system. So it happened that our one of our neighbors was her receptionist. So we walked into the mayor's office. We didn't even know that. And here's this woman, Betsy. And we're like, oh my God, Betsy. Like, can we talk to the mayor? And she's like, well... She's actually in a meeting right now, but she's due back here in 15 minutes. And I'll, I'll make sure she knows you're here. And hopefully she'll want to talk to you. Vera Katz, most powerful woman in the history of Oregon. So she walks in the door immediately after we walked in. There was no time lapse. And she didn't even, like Betsy, didn't even need to point us out. She just saw us standing there and she walked right over to us. And she's like, how are you all doing? And we were in shock because there, there was the person that we needed to change our world. And she says, okay, who's giving you a problem? I mean, she didn't even let us answer. She just kept having asking one question after another. And she's like, what's this? I mean, I, I was like about to speak. And she's like, what's this? She picks up this photograph we had where we had shut down the streets using a block party form and painted the streets and chalked it and installed all these features on all the corners and it was all this illegal in, you know, insurrection. And she's like, this is in our city. She turns to the ombudsman, this like huge guy named Michael. She's like, Michael, shut down the department of transportation. I mean, I, I guess I had managed to say when she asked who's giving a, a problem, I said, I got to tell on the department of transportation to the mayor. It's the best thing ever. I can die now. So I, I I told on transportation and she's like, 
she sees what we've created and she's like, Michael, shut down the Department of Transportation, arrange for a presentation by this neighborhood. Something remarkable has happened. So we go into her office and she's like, she's like, tell me everything about it. And after about 15 minutes, she's heard enough. And she's like, okay, this entire shelf is filled with reports that ne we never act on. And they all have benchmarks in them. These are the, these are the, these are the goals and the benchmarks of every single scale of the state, all the way down to your neighborhood. Go through every one of these documents. I'll get you have two hours. Find the language that I need because I don't know how to articulate what you've done. You need to tell me in terms of the goals and objectives that everyone has agreed to at every level what you have accomplished. Bookmark all these books where you find the language and then we'll go see the city lawyer. I'll be back in two hours. In two hours, we've gone through all the documents and we found all this stuff about youth engagement, beautification, livability, sustainability. And then she takes us into the city lawyer and she lays the photo down in front of the lawyer whose Linda, name was Linda Meng. And she's like, Linda, make this legal. <laughs> I was like, what? What? Like, here is the most, here's like the executive of the thing suddenly saying, the world will change. Do it. I didn't even realize that was possible. Yeah. Responsive government? What's that? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm used to seeing, I mean, everybody's used to seeing stories in the paper about people like squabbling over legislation and trying to get bills passed. But, you know, the power of an executive to make unilateral decisions in, within a spectrum that they can totally do um, is there all the time. In fact, the mayor of Bloomington could just do that. And in one day, like the mayor of Bloomington could announce on TV tonight, every single woman, every single homeless woman will be safe and off the streets in two months and they could do it. The tool would be that they would make an emergency declaration, which would enable them to waive building codes and activate derelict spaces, irrespective of codes and, and zoning, and just be able to start retrofitting those spaces with minimal utilities to get women off the streets so that they're safe at night. And rapes don't happen in the streets of Bloomington like that. Like they well, could actually, do that right now. Well, actually, the uh, the one of the main missions just shut down their female housing program in favor of the men because there's more of them and where they're devoting and dedicating their resources. There is a uh, middle way house for uh, battered women is the old term, you know, sexual assault, safety issues and relationships and things that exists. And that's kind of a high rise actual housing uh, situation. But as far as the homeless situation, I haven't heard yet of anybody stepping in to fix the fact that now there is also a new uh, hope for families shelter. I mean, there are these burgeoning things, but the need is always still beyond the scale of the organizations and the projects that exist, how many bed spaces you've got. And then you've got the issue of people being whether they can keep stay with their pets or not. And we are about to transition to a female mayor. Uh, it's, you know, it's all but a foregone conclusion. 
and she, she is headed to Habitat for Humanity, uh, but that's still kind of got certain barriers that only certain people can reach. Um, so as this new uh, female administration comes in, that does have some experience with, you know, low-income housing and such, maybe there will be more receptivity to that. But at present, these women are likely going to have to go into relationships in order to have a place to sleep, you know, the kind of a codependency effect that is created when someone's in need, and particularly, you know, with this gender dynamic of often abusive situations. The guy's got a place, oh, you know. Yeah. Have to do what you got to do. Yeah. And so that's that's just, it's amazing and inspiring what you guys are doing out there. What's the, uh, what's the kind of forefront or next stage? What you've got going on? What is uh, planet repair? City repair. Yeah, planet repair is where city repair got started. It's um, it's a block adjacent to the first intersection painting, and uh, a group of people were living together that were all creative activists with a permaculture background, and it happened that um, everybody there. Uh, was you know really I would say emotionally intelligent, good communicator, and um, extremely dedicated. So we got a lot of synergy, and we just started to innovate fearlessly, and um, we started to treat our house as a project. We began to teach permaculture courses out of it and plant the landscape as a, as a demonstration project, and we retrofit the entire environment there with um, passive solar design techniques and. Uh, and uh and, and natural building so the whole house is filled with straw in the walls straw clay and the inside is earthen plasters and the outside is a mixture of of cob and um an earthen plaster with all this inlaid mosaic glass and mirrors and so it's really just absolutely gorgeous and people come it's like a tourist destination to just drive by it um we have a solar-powered cat palace, three stories tall, with featuring a solar-powered aquarium in it for the fish. Just the cats to just look at fish all day while they sit in a bed of catnip, so they're totally stoned, just gazing at fish. And then we have a chicken palace, which is this huge earthen egg elevated in the air, and the egg has a beak, which is the porch, and it's got a green roof on it. And so we have a lot of fun, a lot of sculptural fun. Um, but there's a lot of natural building on the site and a lot of features for community, like outdoor kitchens and out and workshop spaces with tools for people to work with. And the ins inside of the house is blown open. So there's a giant space for everything from movement and storytelling to movies and then classes that we teach. So it's a really dynamic atmosphere. And uh, it's been characterized by a lot of just good sweetness and good community for all the time that it's existed and there hasn't been big dramas but what's up right now in city repair is the rebuilding of city, city repair um i would just say like the the things going on in the country that were so upsetting to communities was also upsetting to our core culture and city repair as a nonprofit. so based kind of on on racial lines actually 
people started to fight. Um, they, and they, it was just basically people being upset at the larger world and becoming so stressed out, even at their own friends, that they started to fall into misunderstanding and miscommunication. So um, people started to break down their own their own synergy, trying to make the world a better place because they were so upset about things that were beyond their control. And there's a lot, got to have a lot of empathy and compassion for it, even though it was really, really painful. And some people were ended up being bad actors. So I'm, I'm just bringing that up because a lot of people have been through that. A lot of people have similar stories across the country. So one thing that's going on now is that city repair is really beautifully rebuilding itself. There's more, there's more racial diversity in it now than ever before. And at the same time, people are really treating each other beautifully. So I feel like, you know, as a culture, we've been inoculated by some really harsh experiences we've lived through. And now we're stepping up, stepping back in to work together. Um, and I think that, you know, what got lost in all that tension was that we have a common cause to work on. And that's what we're really recovering is that we were refocused on, you know, what is a common threat, but also what brings us together. So that recovery is the big news of the last year and a half. And we're back on to um, really serving communities across the city, no matter who they are, where they're coming from. When people say they need help, we show up and we help them do. We're, we're really nerdy about it. Like it's a kind of activism where you help other people do what they want to do. So instead of us having a thing we want everyone else to help us to do, which would mean that like, we're always just like kind of struggling. We just go and help everybody. We put out the call, you know, what do you want to do? What do you want to do to change the world? And people are like, um, we're, we need some help over here. The cool thing is our approach. Like we don't, we don't just go. We're like, we put out a call across the country. Hey, everybody who wants to help all these people over here. And then like, all these people come to help. And we got 44 of these going on all over the city. So everyone's all over the place from across the region and the country and the world coming to Portland to help us do this gigantic barn raising of four dozen projects at once. So we we get mighty. So on a seasonal basis, we get real strong. We get real, real tooled up for uh, for this. And then once we're done, it's summertime. So all these people have met all these new friends. So they kiss and they make babies and they go off and play and they go camping and that's good. So we're actually, we time our activism to be part of the natural phenology of the world. So we incubate when it's cold and when it starts to get warm and everyone's excited before they run off and play, we get all the stuff done. It super connects them. And then they go off and they really play and they have a wonderful time. And then they really want to do it again and again. So we've really aligned our activities with how people live in the climate of this place. So it, it works out in, in, in beautiful alignment with the cycle. And uh, I know you guys are doing uh, like edible landscaping and food forests and, you know, sort of putting a living, breathing skin back on what I call the urban scarscapes. Uh -huh. uh, that it's like a skin graft that you're doing to, you know, mitigate, you know, the heat island effect, food scarcity, the food desert situation. And yeah. you know, 
generally these things are considered trash trees when you have fruit growing along the roadways and everything. But uh, somebody just mentioned to me online about how they'd gone around and gleaned fruit to take to Dignity Village. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, I know you had mentioned previously that your daughter is growing up in this and that she's learning a whole other way of being that's been lost to us that maybe used to be intrinsic. Yeah, she's being raised to see what's going on around her, like to identify plant species and animals, to listen to bird bird language. And uh, yeah, she two days a week, she's out um, running around in the forest as part of her education with a group called Rewild. So they're rewilding my child. And uh, one of the ones that one of the beautiful outcomes of, of that is that she sings and dances constantly. And she's just irrepressible, always smiling and laughing and inventing songs. In fact, I've got this, I've got the, her latest song written on my leg because she's like, dad, dad, take this down. Do you have any paper? And I'm driving. So like I'm using this hand to drive and I actually, I'm not looking at my leg, but I'm writing on my leg. I'm writing this like one line after another on my leg because I'm wearing short pants and, you know, just guessing that I'm spelling correctly and getting all the letters in there. And I did, I got everything. So she sings me a line and I write it as she's singing. And then she's like, okay, ready for the next one? So we're driving as I'm doing that. And then we took a picture of my leg once I stopped driving. But yeah, she's irrepressible. We're, we're uh, raising her to be um, just limitlessly fearless and happy, you know. And she she's getting she know she knew about Roman colonialism at two years old, you know. She learned about the issues. Uh, she learned about people trying to indoctrinate each other with you know religiosity and fear and guilt when she was a little girl, so that she would be able to relate to some of her cousins that are trying to do that and help and understand where they're coming from, not, not to hate them, but to understand, to have a framework for engaging that confusion and make sense of it. So. And uh, so, so are you guys uh, doing any kind of metrics on any of this stuff um, or, you know, creating ways for other communities to replicate. I mean, I know you're saying they just need to dive in and trust themselves and start gathering ideas, but I think I'd heard previously that some of those things like the solar tea stands and stuff that you can actually get plans from the city on, on those kind of things, like architectural specs on any of that stuff. Is that, is that right? To the extent that they keep records, they could look them up for you, but it'd be easier just to turn to, CityRepair.org and ask us to send plans. Um, but one thing that we do, and we also get help from the Department of Transportation to do, is get things started in other cities. So if somebody, you know, wants some help, they can just email or call, and uh, that'd be like info at CityRepair.org or office at CityRepair.org. Um, or if they wanted to contact me at my design office, it would be. Um, trout at communitexture.net. Um, and I'm happy to talk to people personally. Um, sometimes I travel to different cities to help people get, get things going. The favorite thing is to show up and 
uh, give it like a public talk on a Friday night. And that gets all these people to come to a workshop the next day. And then we do all this designing like neighborhood by neighborhood. We can look at anybody's neighborhood and figure out a strategy for transforming it into a village. Uh, and, and then maybe on a Sunday, we'll go out and actually do some, some implementations like one of my favorite things in Prescott, Arizona, we did was we went down into a big trough, big kind of drainage, and we just took all the garbage that was down there. We cleaned it all out, and then we found a bunch of reusable things, and we built a park. We did all that in two and a half hours. And uh, there was a couple old ladies that seemed like they were from Krypton or something that just were so powerful and strong. So... Yeah, so that's one of my favorite models. Get everything stirred up with a big talk and then have people do a bunch of things that inspire them to do more when I when I leave. But I don't need to come. I mean, if we just talk, I can send technical information. But seriously, our Department of Transportation is ready to help any city. So if somebody says, hey, we want to start doing stuff in the right-of-way, um, they can call my friend Greg Raisman at the De Portland Department of Transportation, and he's happy to to hold anybody's hand and get them going in their city. That's his job. He's also really fun. People come from all over the world because he's our beer ambassador. He's like Portland's ambassador to the world of beer across the planet. So he organizes these giant gatherings of, of, of people that are craft brewers. So he's a real, he's a fun guy. And uh, do they do any, uh, interacting with like officials of other cities you know like this is this is what we did here as a bureaucracy yeah just sort of informally yeah he'll talk to anybody he uh he organizes all kinds of outreach for these kinds of initiatives like uh not too long ago we were doing a presentation for the center for disease control federal bureaucracy and presenting the public health outcomes of doing this kind of work. Because, I mean, with obesity being the second leading killer of Americans right now, um, people are, I mean, like, for instance, the Johnson Foundation is funding placemaking initiatives because they've realized that, you know, Americans by and large are living in neighborhoods without any destinations for getting out and walking to. So they've decided that placemaking, they realize that placemaking is a strategy, important strategy for getting people to engage and get outside and to abate the loneliness and uh, feel connected to other people. So if they want to get outside and interact, so they've been funding what they call the active living movement. So Greg, City Repair, um, we feel connected to that movement and they turn to us for examples of not just the projects that we implement but the ordinances and the legal structures that we've created so that those can be adopted in other cities and that's what greg also helps with he'll help a city take our template and adapt it to their city or town so that then they can do things in their own way yep um, it's something that's sorely needed and you know, activates all these dormant qualities that you talk about. Um, you know, there's been all these delays of decades 
to do anything about climate change and now we're experiencing it kicking in and so there's a greater consciousness uh you know in more people wanting to do something and have some impact about it not some abstract thing 20 years down the line and you know really the type of things that you're doing is compensating for the surrounding norm which is so recalcitrant so uh we can create a kind of exponential catalytic effect um and, and show basically show the neighbors how it's done it kind of a different form of keeping up with the joneses could occur if you know people are realizing oh you're all solarized and you're not having to pay utilities where you've got a fixed rate you know and you know oh you've grown most of your own food so the food inflation isn't impacting you as much i mean i think it's that type of thing that will get people to go oh well maybe i should operate a little differently here because i'm missing out aside from yeah. these uh, spiritual qualities and experiences that you talk about people are missing out on you know a certain level of joy that people don't even think is possible yeah especially in their um, incredibly busy lives where they fiercely feel like they have time to breathe Well, thanks for uh, enlightening us in, in these directions about uh, what you guys have accomplished and what's ongoing and, you know, next levels to, to get to. Uh, I think our audience will find it pretty inspiring and hopefully get engaged with some level of implementing it in their own lives and in our community. I hope so. The rewards are uh, are really, I, I have found to be endless. There's nothing like finding your voice and your agency and being excited about the possibilities. Yeah, I, I didn't always feel the way I feel. I, I was very disengaged and very individuated. And now I feel, I don't feel like there's anything I can do. And uh, that's a good feeling to have. And I think anybody can attain that without too much struggle. Yeah, to... I can go on about the personal benefits for a long time. To go from having a mind that is restless and cyclical and revisiting old words to being quiet and simple. Um, and it requires engaging and to go from not being able to listen to people and you don't even notice because you just don't listen to being really good at listening. Um, like a person, I can, I, these are personal testimonies about my own life, but also about the people that I know and I care about that have, I've watched them grow and change over time. And it's from house, houseless people living in these villages that learn all these, that, uh, yeah, you could just go to Dignity Village and listen to all these personal testimonies of how their lives have changed and become better. And not just because they're not so susceptible to violence and drugs, but um, the personal, personal rewards.
of uh, becoming a better person and a better partner, better better partner for your partner, a better person for your family. Like all these things that I, I don't think any, I don't know, counseling can only help so much. Meditation and yoga can only help so much. Um, there are things that you can only come to grips with when you're with other people working on it together. So, yeah. Anyway, the, the benefits are, are just seemingly endless of getting, in, getting off the couch and getting involved, jumping in. Well, great. Uh, thanks for having an impact and, and growing it out, you know, turning other people on to possibilities. Thanks. Likewise. I'm glad we're on the same team. Yep. And we'll uh, definitely have to have you out here, if if only remotely, for uh, some of the things we're organizing in the community. Yeah, I'm always happy to zoom in. And uh, as we uh, interact with, you know, local authorities and things, it's it's great to have your examples to cite. Just let me know if you need my help. I'd be happy to attend meetings and write letters or anything like that. Great. Will do.